Well, our scripture reading for today is from 1 Samuel 17. And if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it up because we're going to spend quite a bit of time there as we go through the message. Um, 1 Samuel 17 as we talk about the story of David and Goliath. But while you're looking that up, I, I want to share with you a, a, an experience I had. Just earlier this week, a couple days ago, I was feeling really overwhelmed. And I think that's pretty common for a lot of us. And I just put my head on my desk for a moment and I could almost hear God's voice. It wasn't audible, but I could hear him imposing on my thoughts, choose joy, choose joy. And I thought, what is that referring to? And it brought my mind to a passage from Jesus' brother, James. In James 1, 2, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. And I thought about that passage, and I thought, you know, I've preached that passage countless times. It's a fascinating passage because so often we dismiss it. Nobody chooses joy in the midst of our trouble. But see, that's the point. That's why James has to tell us to do it. He's telling us because he's speaking to people who have put their faith and trust in God. And he knows that when we put our faith and trust in God, that we can put our faith and trust in the fact that God is powerful enough to reach into the worst of opportunities and use it as an opportunity for our joy. And I needed that reminder this week because I don't even remember now what I was concerned about or worried about or fearful of, but I know now that I can choose joy. And it reminds me of, of other things that we can do as people of faith. When we put our faith in God, you know, a lot of times people like to talk about the divine gifts, right? We like to talk about things like divine intervention and miracles. And those are wonderful things, and many of us have experienced them. But, you know, what my mind went to was one of maybe the most neglected gifts of faith, and it's one that actually carries the same amount of power as the other more flashy gifts, and that's the gift of perspective. And here's what I mean. When, when you have the power of God in your life, your perspective over everything changes, and that's what we're going to learn today in the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Now, we're in a, uh, I think it's our third week, fourth week, I'm not even sure, of our summer stories series, and we're walking through what are some of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament, and asking God, how does your wisdom and truth speak into our lives in this moment today? And what we're going to learn from the story of David and Goliath is that faith in God is the perspective from which we see victory. Faith in God is the perspective from which we see victory. This is not prosperity gospel, but it's that if you don't see hope in the midst of your struggles, if you don't see light at the end of the tunnel, if you can't see a future place of calm that comes after the storm that you're going through right now, our faith can make all the difference if it becomes the perspective from which we look at everything else in life. Because you know this, perspective changes how we see everything, and not all perspectives give us an accurate view of reality. If you don't believe me, just check out these two photos, right? Anybody want an ice cream cone, leaning tower of, yep. Uh, how about a girlfriend, wife, I don't know. That one's a little creepy there. <laughs> but they sure look real, don't they? 
And what we're about to learn from the story of David and Goliath is that, that everybody in this story, except for David, was looking at the same situation. And because they were looking at it from the wrong perspective, they did not see a way out. And then David shows up. He looks at it from a different perspective, same situation, but looks at it through the lens of faith in God. And as you probably know, in the story of David and Goliath, David finds victory. But see, like any good fight scene, there's got to be a backstory, right? And so I want to give you just a very simple overview if you don't know the story of 1 Samuel. Earlier in the story, it's it's about the history of the nation of Israel, and they come into this long battle with another nation, the Philistines. And the Philistines, a few chapters before, they steal the Israelites' Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is this, this vessel of God's presence and the Philistines saw that that, that for some mysterious reason was, was the, the reason for their victories, militarily speaking, and so they decided to steal it. And the reason they knew was because the Israelites were flaunting it and treating God as if he was a genie just to do the things that they wanted him to do. And so when they stole the Ark of the Covenant, Israel was humbled because in those moments they did not have God's blessing. And then the Philistines were humbled because they too got a whole bunch of trouble from God for doing what God did not want them to do. And so they gave the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel But that did not mean that the two nations got along. They continued to fight, and that leads us into a specific battle that we're going to talk about in our scripture reading today. Now, at this point in Israel's history, they have their very first king, their earthly king. His name is Saul. And Saul is is clearly on his way out. He's still the king. But we read just before this passage uh, that God has anointed a new king, and his name is David. But David is not yet the king. Now, if you don't know who David is, his backstory is he's the youngest of eight sons of a man named Jesse. And at this point in his life, he's splitting his time between being a shepherd for his father's sheep in Bethlehem and serving his country in the military with his older brothers. And so we get into 1 Samuel 17, and there's this battle that's taking form between Israel's troops and the mighty Philistine army. So take a look at verse uh, 2. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. Now, there's a couple of ways that this showdown can can play out. Of course, they could all just fight, right, uh, like you might normally see. But there was a different method the ancient Greeks used to use, and it was where they would choose one warrior from both sides. They would fight a battle to the death, and the winner would take all. And so that's what we're going to see unfold here. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. That's nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor and bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 125 pounds. It's on his legs. He wore bronze greaves. Um, A bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. 
And so just, just picture this for a second. This guy's nine feet tall. I'm doing this. I'm five foot ten. He's like nine feet tall, right? This guy's just huge. He's carrying more armor than many of us probably weigh. And part of his gear is a whole other human being whose single job is to hold a shield in front of Goliath. Verse 8. But Goliath then stood, this massive man stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not a servant of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight me and kill me, then we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And you and I would be too, wouldn't we? Now, this wasn't just a one-time declaration, but if you continue to read the story, you'll see that both armies stood their ground on their respective hills for 40 days. And every single day, Goliath would wake up in the morning and he would come out at night and both times he would come out and say the same thing over and over again. Are you ready to fight me yet? And of course, nobody wanted to. And so you're assuming that the tension's going to boil to a place where eventually they're going to have a battle the old-fashioned way. And it's at this point in the tension of the story that David, the youngest son of Jesse, comes to bring his brothers some lunch and check how they're doing. And the whole showdown between David and Goliath begins in a pretty uneventful way. It begins with a question. Look at verse 22. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. Isn't that fascinating. David asked his brothers, how are you? And the reason I think it's fascinating is the first thing we're learning about our perspective when it comes to being people of faith. Number one, sometimes asking a question is the first step to the right perspective. Sometimes asking a question, maybe a better way of saying it, is the first step to the godly perspective. And we don't have a whole lot of time to linger here, but I think it's relevant to the moment that we're living in right now, isn't it? I mean, a lot of us are, are looking out our windows, figuratively or literally, into the world, and, and we're so focused on our own feelings, our own opinions, our own lack of knowledge, or our own what we might believe is a lot of knowledge, and, and we're getting angry in a lot of ways, or we're getting worried, or like me earlier in the week, just getting overwhelmed. And I wonder if it would be better if many of us, just in many situations, started with the perspective that asks a question, how are you? I think we all know that the world would be a better place if that was the starting point for our perspective on anything, wouldn't we? And it was that question that's being asked when, when in 1 Samuel 17, 23, as David's talking to his brothers, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, steps out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. David heard it. And when the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, 
remember that Goliath has been coming back and forth twice a day for 40 days and telling them who's ready to fight, and every time they're all running away. And so I could almost imagine as David asks his brothers how they're doing, and then Goliath comes out and everybody runs, I could almost hear them say to David, how are we? How do you think we are? Look at this nine-foot guy. He's going to kill us, right? But see, David responded differently than they did. He asked some more questions about the situation, and then he said, I'll go, I'll fight Goliath. And the statement that he made looked nuts. Nobody could see how David would ever be able to fight this guy. Everybody had an excuse for why he shouldn't. His brothers, of course, just like a good big brother, said, you have no business being here, just go home. Uh, you had uh, Saul who, who figured that he didn't have enough experience, that he was too young. But David held his own, and it's simple why he had the confidence to hold his own. It's because he had a different perspective. While everybody else was focused on how big Goliath was, and Goliath was big, but David's focus was on the only thing that was bigger than Goliath, and that was God. And the second thing that we learn if we want to have a perspective that begins with our faith in God is that when God is our focus, even the greatest adversaries become smaller in the shadow of a mighty and living God. When God is our focus, even our greatest adversaries become smaller in the shadow of a mighty and living God. Now this and, the, and what comes after this reminded me of a story from a number of years ago. I think our boys were quite young, actually, our older boys. And we took them to the zoo. I know at least one of them was still in a stroller. And we were checking out the lion cage. And my car keys ended up brushing up against the metal. There's like this metal door underneath the six inches of glass that protects you. And what I saw was that immediately when my keys hit that metal, all of the lions that were in the lion cage, they actually woke up, got up, and started walking toward the glass. And what I realized was that that must be where they feed the lions. And when they heard my keys, they all thought that I I was there to bring them food. Well, it was pretty cool because my kids got a front row seat to the lions as they're kind of gnawing and, and pawing at the glass there. I wasn't too afraid, maybe a little bit, but I wasn't too afraid because, see, my perspective was from the other side of six feet of, or it's not six feet, six inches of glass. See, David had a similar perspective when he was looking at David. It was, or I'm sorry, David had a similar perspective when he was looking at Goliath. It's, it's not that Goliath wasn't huge, right? It's not that, that I didn't think a lion could maul me and my family in two seconds, right? It was that David knew that he had the protection of God. And that God was bigger than Goliath. And you know this when he asked the question in verse 26. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Of the living God. And that word God, the, the word he chooses to use to name God is Elohim in, in the Hebrew, which is the, the plural form of God. That, that there's this one Philistine, and then you've got God who is everywhere. And so who is this guy? And do you see what David is doing there? Because David is focused on God primarily. He sees Goliath not for how much bigger he is than David, but for how much smaller he is 
than God. And, and the same thing could be said when we're facing challenging seasons and moments in our own lives, whatever it is, a fear, a battle. James doesn't tell us, right, in the New Testament, James doesn't tell us to choose joy in the midst of trouble because trouble is joyful. He says that when you know a living God and that living God is your perspective, then you have hope that God is powerful enough to reach into the worst of troubles and make them something that will draw you closer to him, which can give you perspective in the midst of them to be able to get through the most terrible of adversaries. See, when God is our focus, our greatest adversary seems smaller in his shadow. Goliath could be huge. Goliath could be big. But see, there's only one of him. God is everywhere. And God created him. And God created everything. And so we know. And, and David says, so if that's true and, and we're supposed to be God's people, then why are you all afraid of Goliath? And so David makes this case to, to Saul, and he shows him how God has used other experiences in his life to prepare him to be the one to fight Goliath. Look at verse 34. He says, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. This, David's talking about himself here. He says, he says, I've been keeping my dad's sheep. When, when a lion or a bear uh, comes and carries off a sheep from the flock, I've gone after it, struck it down, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies again, the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he'll rescue me again from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you because you're about to meet him. <laughs> it doesn't say that in the Bible, but I just kind of imply, I think it's implied here that that's what Saul's thinking. He, he even offers David his, his armor because he probably figures you're going to need all the help that you can get, but it didn't fit. And so David took it off and he traded it for some pretty simple tools, his shepherd's staff, five smooth stones, and a slingshot. And that's all he needed when he approaches Goliath. And looking at young David, Goliath says this, verse 43. He said to David, am I a dog that you're coming after me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He said, come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Do you see a theme here? The God of the armies of Israel who you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. You said I'm going to be delivered into yours. You're going to be delivered into mine. I'll strike you down. I'll cut off your head. And this very day, I will give your the carcasses of the Philistines' army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. 
As the Philistines moved closer to it, as the Philistine Goliath moved closer to attack David, David ran quickly, see his confidence, toward the battle line to meet Goliath. Reaching into his bag, he took out a stone. He slung it, and it struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. I don't think there's any other way to read that story. It's just incredible, isn't it? After the entire buildup and an entire army, including their king, saying, I can't do this. We're afraid because they're looking at it from a different perspective. David comes and he saves the day and God gets all the glory. And so what do we learn? Well, the third thing we learn about the power of perspective, to find victory through uh, looking at life in the lens of faith in God is that when we are stripped of everything else, it becomes clearer to ourselves and those around us that it is God who saves. That when we're stripped of everything else, it becomes so much clearer to ourselves and to God around, to all those around us, that it's God who saves. See, as we read through 1 Samuel, we see that that it is written with painstaking effort to show us that it wasn't David, but it was God who saved the day. If, if Saul's armor fit, for example, and David won, people might have thought, well, maybe the reason was you got to wear the king's armor. If, if David came to fight with the biggest sword, then people might have just assumed that it was sharp metal that pierced the mighty warrior. But when a young shepherd boy... <laughs> with no protection at all, kills a nine-foot giant with a rock and a slingshot? How can anyone question the existence of God? And friends, this isn't just a story. But the same is true for you and me. The more we lose, the less we have, the more God has an opportunity to work in our lives to give us the right perspective. And I don't say that like it's easy. I struggle with this in the same way you do. But this is why James can confidently say, as the brother of Jesus, as his own brother is now his Lord and perspective for all of life, that every trouble in our life is an opportunity for great joy because our troubles strip us from whatever it was that we were clinging to before. And if we choose the power of perspective, The power of putting our perspective in alignment with God in the midst of our trials. We know that when we get to the end of our rope, it's only God's beginning. That God is just getting started. It's it's why one of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible, I probably probably quoted this like every other week since this whole pandemic started. It's 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not only on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And isn't that our, our, it isn't that our troubles are light and momentary. I, I read that passage and sometimes I get caught up in that. Paul isn't saying that, that what we go through on this side of heaven is light and momentary, that it's not difficult. It certainly was very difficult for him. And he's not saying it to us any more than somebody would have looked at nine-foot Goliath and said, eh, he's not really that tall, right? That just wouldn't have made any sense at all. 
But see, when we look at our problems and our troubles through the perspective of faith, we see that even the biggest giants, even the largest problems pale in comparison to an infinite and powerful and eternal God. And while everything around us feels like it's changing, that perspective reminds us of what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to know that, don't we? We need to desperately cling to that truth. Parents, as you're making decisions about what's best for your kids this fall, you need to know that no matter what direction you choose, Jesus will be the same no matter what. If if your job is on the line or you're wondering how you're going to provide for your family, you need to know the confidence that the God who says he will take care of you is the same yesterday, today, and no matter what comes in the future. If, If If you are feeling as strong as a mule or as weak as a bug, you need to know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is of the utmost importance no matter what it is you're looking at in life because if you are a follower of Jesus, then Jesus should be the perspective from which you live and speak and rest and by his power alone find victory. And so can we pray for that right now? Lord Jesus, it's easy as I think about the story of David and Goliath to to put ourselves in David's shoes and say, of course, of course God is bigger than Goliath. Of course he is, and I I would love to be in his shoes, and I know that if I was him, that I wouldn't run away like all of the other Israelites, but God, I know that I would be David, and I would throw that stone, and I would carry that slingshot, and I too, through faith, would see victory. But Jesus, I just want to admit that Oftentimes, I feel that confident, too, when I'm watching a movie or reading a book and watching the hero saved today and thinking to myself, if I were in his shoes or her shoes, I would do the same thing. But I also know that far too often when I am in his shoes or I am in her shoes, I'm more like Saul. I'm more like David's brothers. I'm afraid. I look up at the nine-foot giant, and I can't see past it, even though I know in my head that you are bigger. And Lord, I know that I'm not the only person who struggles with this. And so I pray that as you imposed words of hope on my heart when I was overwhelmed this week by being reminded of James' words, choose joy. Lord God, I pray for each and every one of us this week that you would infuse into our spirits a reminder when we are overwhelmed, when we are up against adversity this week, that we are not alone But you are Elohim. You are the God of the multitude. That you are everywhere. 
and you are with us. And so if we look at you first and allow you to become our perspective from which we look at the rest of life, we know that no matter how long it takes, we will find victory in you because you are powerful, because you are good, and because you love us. And so help us to find rest in your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray.